With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and... Starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Caixin Seneca Business Brief brought to you by SubChina. Each week, we bring you a roundup from the world of business in China from Caixin, China's authority on business and financial news, as well as interviews with Caixin Global reporters and editors. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Seneca Podcast. And I'm Ada Shen in Paris. First, our weekly review of business stories from Caixin. The chairman of what became China's largest auto parts maker has died more than 40 years after founding one of the country's more colorful industry players. The founder of Wanxiang Group, Lu Guanxiu, died last week at 72, according to an announcement on the company's website. Wanxiang was created in 1969 when Lu led a small group of farmers with $600 in initial capital to take over a factory that turned scrap metal into farm machinery. The company has since expanded its operations abroad and moved into the new energy sector. The Hangzhou-based company now brings in more than 100 billion yuan in revenue every year. Lu received a number of awards during his life, including the era pioneer of always following the party and national model worker. Speaking of rich people, the Chinese mainland added an average of two new billionaires every week last year, according to a new report helping Asia replace the U.S. as the world's most fertile cradle for individual wealth. The report by UBS and PricewaterhouseCoopers said 101 of the 162 Asians whose personal wealth exceeded 1 billion U.S. dollars for the first time in 2016 were Chinese citizens. A consultant at PwC China said government policy contributed to the latest amassing of wealth. For example, new entrepreneurs have benefited from recent government initiatives encouraging financial technology innovation. But many of China's newly made fortunes are, quote-unquote, vulnerable to reversals of fortune, whether in the form of unstable markets, policy changes, industrial restructuring, their own operation and management issues, or other factors, he said. This wouldn't be China if we didn't have a train story for you this week. A next-generation carriage that will add huge flexibility to the country's high-speed train fleet made its debut in Shanghai, sporting a new double-decker design and the potential for specialty short trains to accommodate VIPs. Christened with the temporary name of 3X, the new cars should help China Rail Corporation, the national rail operator, as it chugs ahead toward profitability and as it seeks to squeeze more money out of its state-of-the-art high-speed rail network, easily the world's biggest. Caixin first disclosed details of the new cars in February and got a glimpse of them in their first public display at a trade show in Shanghai last week. 
Despite its state-of-the-art nature, China's current fleet of high-speed rail trains is relatively inflexible, limited by technology constraints to either 8 or 16 carriages. The new carriages will eliminate those limitations, allowing for trains from as short as 2 carriages, which could be used to transport VIPs, to as many as 16. In addition to their flexibility to meet demand based on seasonal patterns, the new design will also allow for removal of individual cars for maintenance. With the current technology, entire trains must be taken out of service just to make repairs or perform other maintenance to a single carriage. Three years after booting them out, e-commerce giant JD.com is quietly welcoming back thousands of mom-and-pop merchants to its online shopping malls, vowing to tackle the quality issues that prompted it to abandon its previous efforts with them in the first place. The move takes direct aim at arch-rival Alibaba, whose wildly popular Taobao online mall allows thousands of such small shops to sell goods to consumers out for bargains or for hard-to-find products. Alibaba now has a lock on the lucrative market in China, referred to as consumer-to-consumer sales, a model pioneered by U.S. internet veteran eBay. JD operates almost exclusively in the business-to-consumer arena, where larger, licensed merchants sell products to consumers. It sells its own products directly to consumers and also allows large store operators and brands to set up third-party shops in its online malls. Under its new program, JD will open its platform to smaller shops by initially targeting artisans, designers, and other makers of distinctive products, the company told Caixin. China's ruling Communist Party has downsized its powerful Central Military Commission in a major reshuffle. The party's Central Committee made the shakeup at its first plenary session last week, offering no explanation. The commission, which oversees China's 2 million military personnel, has been reduced to 7 members from 11. Like before, it has one chairman and two vice chairmen, but now only 4 members down from 8. Xi Jinping retains his post as the commission's chairman. Air Force General Xu Qiliang will stay on as a vice chairman, and Zhang Youxia, a member of the previous commission, was promoted to the other vice chairmanship. Zhang joined the military as a foot soldier in the late 1960s and rose through the ranks before being appointed to the military commission in 2012 as a three-star general. Wei Fenghe, a general and commander of the People's Liberation Army Rocket Force, retains his position as a member of the commission. The three other members, Generals Li Zuocheng, Miao Hua, and Lieutenant General Zhang Shengming, are new. Zhang joined the army at the age of 18 and fought twice in China's wars in Vietnam in 1979 and again in 1984. His father, Zhang Zongxun, was a general who helped found the People's Republic of China in 1949. Let's turn now to some of Caixin Global's reporters and editors to chat about some of the stories in the news this week. First up is Doug Young, senior editor at Caixin Global. Doug, on Friday morning, my wife was cracking me up as she was looking at all the fun that Chinese internet users are having uh, as they poke fun at the new name that McDonald's has uh, evidently given itself. Uh, but I said there's just no way that the fast food giant has actually changed the name McDonald's in China. Uh, can you clear up what the story is here? Uh, the story here is... is some might say it's a little bit of a much ado about nothing. But uh, what happened was McDonald's recently sold off most of its China stores to a local partner a company called Citic. And Citic in the last couple of weeks, I think it is, uh, went and registered. Well, yeah, they went and registered the, the new company. And they apparently changed the name. And that's, that's the big deal. Uh, the name change was actually, it was originally the Chinese for McDonald's, which is Mai Dan Lao. 
but they changed it to the equivalent of golden arches in, in Chinese, which is jingoman. Um, so this has just caused a lot of talk, and uh, it's probably much ado about nothing, but you know, I think it's similar. Apparently, they did this in, also in a Latin American market. Uh, they, they changed it to Spanish for golden arches. But I, I think it's also a slightly symbolic of handing over of the torch from McDonald's. Uh, McDonald's had previously owned and operated all the stores mostly by itself. And now it's essentially handing them over to a partner, uh, which is a local partner. And it's much more of the franchise type model that they use in the rest of the world. So any clue as to what prompted the name change? I mean, McDonald's isn't saying anything. You know, they, they just say it's a, it's a name change. You know, I think they're trying to give it a, a separate identity. But no, there wasn't. The, the, the old name McDonald's is a name they've used forever. And it, it literally means wheat becoming labor is the way I translate it. Uh, but it's, it's, you know, it's purely based on the sound. It has nothing to do with the meaning. Uh, this new one, you know, obviously all of us Westerners know Golden Arches is a nickname for McDonald's in the States. You know, maybe this is sort of showing a, a new era coming. And you're right. I, I think this, in this case, they translated the word Golden Arches rather than a mnemonic they translated as the word for gold and arches. So maybe they think this sounds a little classier, a little up to date, something like that. Uh, you know, it does have slightly a, a classier sound in Chinese because when people say golden arches in English, they think McDonald's. But in Chinese, you get this image of arches of gold. Uh, you know, it sounds sort of nice. So maybe they're looking for a nicer sounding name there. They made a point of saying that this change is just in the registered company. It's not in the, the brand name, and they'll continue to use the McDonald's name. So it's, it's just the registered company. Um, you know, my personal feeling is maybe they're hoping that people will start using this name sort of colloquially, the way they do in, in the States. You know, we call McDonald's Golden Arches, we got Mickey D's. You know, uh, people start having a little more fun with these names because the Chinese aren't really known for doing that kind of thing. And, and, you know, maybe McDonald's hopes that that's what will happen here. Okay, great. The next story is about China concept stocks like Chudian and Rise Education and Siku uh, that are apparently taking a beating in New York. So what's going on here? The, the story here is that we've had a small wave of uh, IPOs by, by Chinese companies in New York. That's what we mean by China concept stocks. It's basically just a Chinese company that's, that's listing in New York, like Alibaba and Baidu are both what we would call China concept stocks. But anyway, we've had at least three, and I think a, a couple more uh, have debuted in New York recently. And, and most of them did pretty well on their first day. But what's happened this, this past week is there's just been a bit of a bloodbath. And on one day in particular, three of the new listees, uh, including one called Xu Dian, another one called Rise Education, and then the third one was called Siku, is a luxury e-commerce company. But yeah, there was one day when all three of these just crashed. Rise fell 14%. Yeah, no puns intended there. And then uh, Siku and, and Chudian both fell 7%. And, and Chudian has just been dying this week. They had originally shot up by over 20, 25% from their IPO price when they listed. And since then, in the, just the last few days, it's just totally crashed and burned. And now it's trading below the IPO price. 
And you know, the 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 question then is, well, what's happened here? Why why did people go from euphoria to to panic? That's the way the markets work. Uh, there was a little bit of a catalyst with Chudian because their CEO made some remarks that weirded some people out a little bit. Um, but the the fact is, you know, Alibaba, Baidu, the the real staple Chinese stocks have had just a huge run this year. Um, they're all up by fifty percent or more. So, I, and their stocks have also started to retreat a little bit too. So, I think this may just be a you know either a pause or a correction in a little bit of China euphoria that was building up earlier in the year. Okay, great. I understand the third story you have for us is a little bit off the wall, uh, something rather unpleasant that happened in the food delivery world. Uh, tell us what happened. Uh, the story here, this one is just sort of a telling story, but it's also sort of a little bit gross. Um, basically, uh, a food delivery man for one of the companies called Meituan. There's, there's two main companies now. There used to be three but it's re- recently been reduced it to Meituan and Ulama. And uh, somebody caught pictures of a, of a Meituan delivery guy on camera, basically helping himself to a few bites of, of somebody's food just as he was getting ready to deliver it. And then not only did that, he apparently spat into the food afterwards. Like I say, it was a bit funny, but also a little gross at the same time. So then, you know, the next question is, well, what what does this say? Is this is this like an issue everywhere? I think you know, this points to the fact that people who are hired in these jobs, and and there are just zillions of them. It's not just in the takeout delivery, but all these parcel delivery guys everywhere, and just just menial labors everywhere in China, and and a lot of them are from outside of the big cities. That they're migrants to the cities, you know, and they they don't tend to be very educated. But then also, I think there's probably a certain level of resentment. People, you know, saying, why am I delivering food for this person? And and then there's also been instances where the people buying the products have been abusive. And we had one case earlier where a delivery person beat up a person who complained about the service. So I think it just speaks to this huge sort of class gap uh, between sort of the haves and have-nots, the haves being the people who are ordering the food how people are getting delivery of the products, and then this this real underclass of poorly paid, poorly educated people, a lot of them from the countryside or small towns, who are doing this work for them. So are you a uh, frequent user of these O2O food delivery services? No, I don't. Not not for that reason. I just, I've done it once or twice, but not, not very often. Oh, so you aren't going to get any golden arches delivered to you? <laughs> Yes. Well, Doug, thanks a lot as always, and I look forward to chatting with you again next week. Oh, thanks a lot, Kaiser. Always always a pleasure to be here. Let's hear now from Caixin researcher Yu Bo-kun, who spoke with North Korean merchants and experts about how the tightening sanctions are affecting China-North Korean businesses. Bo-kun, let's start with who you actually interviewed for this very interesting story. Okay. I went to the restaurant and interviewed as a waitress there who is North Korean girl, which is about 19 years old and only been in China for seven months. And also I interviewed staff in North Korea Art Museum, but she kind of refused to talk about business thing. And I interviewed three professors in Tsinghua University and also a rich fellow who studied in Yanbian, a border city in China. So were these professors North Korea experts? Yeah, North Korean experts. What did you learn about the situation and, and the impact of the sanctions then? It's different. 
and we went to the restaurant and asked the waitress, is the sanctions gonna affect their business? And she said the restaurant is going to close within three months. And I asked her, where are you going after the restaurant is closed? And she said, they're all going back to North Korea. I tried to find some North Korean students in the university, but it's really hard to do that because, as I know, all the North Korean students, they live together, like in one dorm. So they seldom communicate with others. But they are really easy to recognize because all of them wear a badge of Kim Jong-un on their clothes. So a, a badge of Kim, Kim Jong-un? Yeah, yeah, a pin, a, a pin, metal pin. So they're going to class wearing these pins, and they they walk around everywhere wearing these pins of the what dear respected leader. I don't know all of the canvas, but according to a friend of mine, he said all of them wear a pin on the canvas. My friend have a North Korean classmate. Did any other North Koreans besides that waitress tell you about their plans or or how they've been impacted? I asked the staff in that art museum, and she said the museum will stay open because I guess it's non-profit organization, so they still open and they sell paintings to sell and also show paintings to customers. So you couldn't. Who else did you talk to?、Uh, I called a hotel in Shenyang. It's called Qi Bao Shen Hotel, and it's on the official website. It said it's the only hotel with overseas investment in North Korea with four star standard, and the shareholders are North Korea and. But according to the sanctions which issued by China, I said、uh, whether it's joint venture or anything that related to North Korea capital, you have to close. But the staff in the hotel said they are not intend to close. So, so what was China buying, or what is China still buying from from North Korea chiefly? Mining products. It takes more than half of the total trade between China and North Korea, and after that is textile. Clothing, something like that, and also there's a big part. It's really important for the border cities like Kunchun and Yanbian, and it's seafood like fish, crabs. And and how have the sanctions impacted these different categories of products? An、uh, example is that so in the past there was like four to five ships of imported aquatic product. Parade from North Korea to China, but after the sanction was issued, all the ships were not allowed to enter the port, and therefore the, all the fish, crab, were all rot in the port. Well, that seems like rather a sad waste, and I can't imagine that it smelled too good either.、Uh, anyway, what's the overall impact on North Korea, and how has the North Korean regime reacted to this so far? With the sanction affect is foreign North Korea's foreign exchange earnings to some levels, of course, because the, you know the mining products is one of the most important export products for them. But on the other hand,、uh, North Korea's ability to survive among these sanctions gets stronger,、uh, like smuggling, for example. There's a saying in China said, "While the priest climbs a foot, the devil climbs ten." 道高一尺，魔高一丈。So in terms of trade between two countries, when the normal trade channels are blocked, so the scale of the smuggling expands, obviously. And according to Professor, smuggling is like an open secret in North Korea and China. But there's no data because it's a secret activity. And also, the smuggling situation is dynamic from time to time due to the constant changing policies. After the sanctions, some of 
the original Chinese businessman, which conduct the normal trade between two countries, turn into illegal smuggling because their company is closed. Bokun, this is clearly an unfolding story, and we should definitely check back in with you in a couple of months to see if you followed up with any of the people you've talked to. Thank you for inviting me, and thank you for making the time. That's this week's show. Thanks for joining us. Drop me an email at kaiser at subchina dot com with your feedback. The Caixin Syndicate Business Brief is powered by Subchina and is produced, recorded, and edited by Kaiser Guo with stories from the staff of Caixin Global. Thanks, of course, to Ada Shen. Special thanks to Li Xin and Tanner Brown of Caixin Global, and to Spring and Autumn and Wu Fei for the music. Be sure to check out the Syndica Podcast, the current affairs show I host with Jeremy Goldcorn, and follow the news from China every day at Subchina. Sign up for a free email newsletter at subchina dot com. Take care.